Food and Beverage Magazine Live, bringing food and beverage to life with your hosts, James Beard Award winner Jennifer English and Food and Beverage Magazine publisher Michael Politz. Featuring leaders in the hospitality, branded food and beverage, and CPG industries, many of whom are Jennifer and Michael's friends in the business. For an informal and informative conversation where friends in the business share the latest intel, ideas, and best practices. Live, juicy inside scoop from the tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam diggers, farms, foodies, and friends of the food and beverage magazine world. Here are your hosts, Jennifer English and Michael Politz. What are you sniffing? I'm staring down the batter with my fierce pitching motion. Want to oh, see it my? Looked like you were, it looked like you were sniffing the glove. I was like, "What is she doing?" No, I'm hiding, my car. I, I'm hiding my grip so that the batter who made it to second base. Can't send a signal about what's coming in because today I want you to say batter up because one of my all-time favorite people is going to be on the show with us today. And it's not Betty Crocker because when you say batter up, I'm thinking you're making a cake. Get it? You know the cake thing? I'm such, I am such a lousy baker. And if anybody wants to come and give me some baking lessons, I am all for it. I don't know that I have the gift well-developed enough to be a good baker, but I think we all have the ability to become the best we can be. And so I'm willing to train in that have regard. Have you tried Barbara Fairchild's dessert book? Yes. But you know what I tend to go for? I go for the pies and the cookies and the cobblers. Those are my things. I love fruit desserts. And if I'm gonna do a, I, I'm, I'm actually not a bad cookie maker, but it's the cakes. Don't you think it's weird that it's a better. cobbler, a cobbler and a cobbler? Isn't that weird? A, what, a cobbler's a shoemaker and then a cobbler's a cobbler. Well, what? when you come from New England, the names for desserts, you know, are so distinctive and regional. We were actually having this conversation last night at dinner. Somebody, I said, you know what, what I miss is Indian pudding because we were serving a dessert last night that I call my apple scotch sundae. I make a homemade applesauce and I usually make it with a little bit of um, brilliant seasoning in it, like a five spice element or maybe just a star anise. But my applesauce, my homemade applesauce is just delicious on its own. And then I, I warm it up and then I put a scoop of vanilla ice cream on it. And then I cover the whole mixture with a butterscotch sauce. And it's called an apple scotch sundae. And it's really delicious. Will and you so make that for my kids? Well, we were talking about those flavors because I made that last night. And the idea was, you know what else I missed that's reminiscent of that? That sort of molten flavoring, texturing uh, is an Indian pudding, which is a very traditional New England dessert. Where can you find that Indian pudding? I've never heard of such a thing. They don't well, have see, it in Indian. It used to be found at places like Lockover and Durgan Park, and you know restaurants that have been around a, a thousand years. Can, can Raghavan make it? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll get the recipe. But you know, one of the places I would say in New York City you might be able to find it is at Francis Tavern. You know, a place that's literally been around for a long time. But I digress. Do you know? Uh, I was going to tell you something about a dessert. About a dessert that we make. 
Okay. And are you the kids love it. Because you guys no, are like you, the king and queen. You know that I'm, when all my restaurants, I don't want Tracy, when he comes on, you got to keep this a secret. I don't want any secrets of my special profit-making secrets. But you know I always serve a birthday cake on the dessert menu. Always a birthday. Everybody loves a birthday cake. That's true. But but the kids at the house, my wife just whipped up this thing, and it's called a dump cake. Have you heard yeah. of that? Yeah. yeah. You have? But your wife, we should we should tell people, your wife is like Buddy V cake. I mean, like, she's like one of the best cake artists in the country. Well, she was on the cake boss. Look at this. This is Michelle Money from The Bachelor. Girls all over the country, they're loving me. Michael Politz, right? Everybody um, loves you. Yeah, she was on the cake boss. Yes. And then she was making these gorgeous, you know, cakes and everything and did them all and for Buddy. And I saw her on, t on the television. I said, what a beautiful girl. Let's put her on the cover of the magazine. And I'm not saying I leverage putting her on the cover of the magazine to bring her to me. But I leveraged it. What are you going to tell you? But and yeah, you she whipped up. And you have a three-year-old now. And we have a beautiful little three-year-old, right? But the main thing is she made a dump cake. Forget about her fantastic. She made a big Moana cake the other day for her nephew. It's beautiful. You can go where do you look at the cake. How is the dump cake? I'm going to start making these things. You literally dump a can of apples, apples, right? Dump a cake on top, put butter on it, and stick it in the oven. I mean, it's literally a dump cake, and it's the greatest. It's better. It's almost as good as the apple crisps. Remember the apple crisp desserts you used to get at school from the lunch lady? Right? That's like my apple scotch sundae. That's, that sounds like a little more intense. Let's talk about who's coming up. I don't want to keep this. is a legend. I mean, this guy is a legend. I'm not talking a little bit of a legend. He is a legend. He is a philanthropist. Do you mind if I say the word philanthropist before yes. you do? I know you like the multi... multi uh, Syllabic. Yes, you like that. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll let you do the introduction. He is take, a another sniff of your, take another sniff of your, of your glove there. Uh, he, he is one of the great Renaissance men of our time. Not only is he a uh, legend, along with his brother, um, in the restaurant community, but I want to go further and say that if you have restaurant week in the city where you live, and the chances are good you do, the guy that is going to be on with us today, my friend, Tracy Neeporent, from Myriad Restaurant Group, where he's not only a partner with his brother Drew, but also the director of marketing, formerly and 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 forever, as far as I'm concerned, the chairman of NYC and Company's Restaurant Committee, the creators of the original Net, uh, Restaurant Week, uh, and really the 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 people responsible for making it possible for the world to discover great dining over the past 25 years. Not only are the restaurants that they operate some of the most legendary James Beard Award winning in the country, but they are also some of the loveliest human beings you would ever want to meet who make you feel when you go to their restaurants like you are not only welcome, but you're warmly welcome. Um, not only is he one of the greatest baseball fans that I've ever met, and we certainly not only met and bonded over the food world. But when, when we shared our mutual love of not only baseball as it's played today, but the history of the game, uh, can I tell you that I found um, a soulmate? And uh, I am 
in spite of the fact as a native Bostonian and Red Sox fan, always going to bear the scars of the 1986 World Series where I stood with my friends, champagne poured when I believe it was Calvin Schiraldi <laughs> was one strike away from winning the first World Series since the Babe Ruth debacle. Um, and of course it all fell apart when the ball went through Billy Buckner's legs. But that's the kind of thing that I can smile about and talk about and celebrate with my good friend, Tracy Neporn. I am very honored that he's taken time to be with us today. And as I introduce him, I, I want to also say that, um, and I hope he doesn't mind my sharing this, but I think he's shared it publicly enough that Tracy, like many New Yorkers, had a personal brush with COVID-19. He has recovered, and we are thrilled for that fact. And we welcome him now in not only this renewed and rejuvenated state of recovery, but um, with great love and affection, I say hello. Hello, Jennifer English. How hello, are you? Michael. Listen, I, I am. I, I hope I can live up to that introduction. I mean, I feel like the souffle better not fall. I will tell you one thing about that game six uh, in the World Series. Mookie Wilson fought off five two-strike pitches. Yeah. I mean, they were one strike away from losing that game. And the Red Sox would have won the World Series four games to two. And Mookie fought off five pitches. And then he hit that ball towards Buckner. And we all know what happened then. And, and that's like having four match points at Wimbledon and still losing. It was very dramatic. I, I'll tell you, I, I was traveling a lot in those days. I was working in advertising. Uh, they had beaten the Astros in a 16-inning game. And I was in California in meetings. And that's just before the internet. I didn't know the game was going to go 16 innings. And I'm in a boardroom in Santa Monica for GTE of California. And I had to keep getting up to check at the bar of the hotel to find out what was going on with the game. Well, the people in the meeting, they thought I had a bladder problem or something because I, <laughs> I had to keep leaving. I didn't know the game was going to go 16 innings. You know, In the ninth inning, the Mets were losing 3 nothing, and I was just dying. I wanted to see what was going to happen. They tied the game 3-3, three to three, and then it went on for another six, seven innings. So I'm a diehard Mets fan, as you know. We've been to Shea Stadium together. Um, I got to get you out to City Field. Of course, I can't get out to City Field right now. There is no baseball. And when they resume, I think it's going to be without fans. So, you know, it's a disappointing year that we're going through. But I'm happy that we're just here. I'm happy to be alive, you know, because this COVID thing was not a fun thing to go through. And, uh, you know, we're all going through this collective experience now. We're, we're kind of under house arrest. But, you know, we're finding things to occupy our time. And, uh, and our restaurants were closed right now. We've been closed since uh, really pretty early in March. And we're hoping that there'll be a, a second act this year. You know, it's a, it's a very traumatizing time that the entire country is going through. And we're not going to have a pity party for ourselves. But this is uh, the way we earn our living. This is what we do every day. In my entire life, I had never had more than two weeks off from the time that I graduated college to the present day. Never. I mean, the longest right. vacation I've ever had was two weeks. And so here we are three months, but it's not a vacation because, you know, you can't do all the things that you want to do on a vacation. You're kind of limited into uh, your frame of reference. So. And then you got sick in the middle of it. Yeah. You know, that was, uh, that was not fun. And of course, you know, all these people that were passing and my wife is a, uh, in, in the healthcare uh, profession, Holy Name Medical Center, which was ground zero for the most cases in New Jersey. 
New Jersey second to New York City in the number of cases in the United States. So uh, we were hit very hard in this area. And uh, it was really, really scary because, you know, people that you know are passing away. And uh, just in, our, in the town that I live in, Tenafly, New Jersey, relatively small town, 25 people in this town have, have succumbed to this and died. So it's not a uh, it's not a walk in the park. And of course, all the other things that are happening in the country now um, and, and these tragic shootings and so on. I mean, people are, are are going through a lot right now. And the one thing I hope for is at some point there will be a degree of normality where people can come back to restaurants and sit down with their family, friends and colleagues and have a good meal and discuss the problems of the world and do it in an atmosphere of gentility and civility. And hopefully all these problems that you have, they melt away a little bit when you have this little two hour vacation that we try to provide. Uh, Michael, Tracy, I am so grateful that you're here, but we've got to do something that's kind of on the tough side. Uh, there are people around the country that don't have the proximity to the virus that New Yorkers uh, and folks from New Jersey have experienced. There are people around the country who are clamoring for things to open back up. In fact, in New, New in uh, Las Vegas, I believe it was yesterday they opened some of the yeah. casinos uh, back up. Tracy, yeah. I want you to explain what the experience of personally having COVID touch your life has taught you about the severity of it and how that influences you as an operator knowing that the severity isn't theoretical, that it is a real thing. And what can you share with operators that haven't had as close an experience of it touching their lives? Well, the one thing I'll tell you is that it's not a day in the park to get it. It is a very, very grueling experience. Now, everybody, uh, there've been different manifestations and how it hits people. I had a fever of 102 for about nine days. Wow. And it was very, very debilitating. And, uh, you know, my voice was very weak and I had a bad cough and, you know, I just was, I was, and, and you, you turn on the news and it was just so, you know, overwhelmingly oppressively de depressing. And, and I just, I had some doubts at some points. I knew that if I ended up in the hospital, I was fortunate that I didn't have to be hospitalized, but I felt if I, if I had to go, that I probably would not have gotten out. And that was how scared I was about it. I did everything I could to try to heal myself. My wife was, you know, pumping me with fluids and, you know, I was taking a lot of, uh, not aspirin, but uh, Tylenol and things like that. You know, there's no cure for this thing. You just have to hope that your your uh, immune system is strong enough to fight it back. But this idea that, eh, it's just a flu and I'll get over it and, you know, I'm young and all that. Uh, there's a security guard in the building uh, where the film center in Tribeca Grill is, was younger than me. He passed away from it. And uh, so this is not something to be joking about. I'm very happy that there are parts of the country where it hasn't hit as hard as here. Uh, but I would just be very, very careful. And honestly, I would listen to the healthcare professionals before I would listen to uh, the president. And he, it's in his interest to try to get everybody to run back to work because he wants to get reelected. But you know what? Uh, you run back to work and then you get sick and you, you pass away or you pass it on to other people. That's not a successful way to get back to business. So we have to, this is, there's a lot of unknown territory here. We've never had something quite like this. 
and I would not poo poo it. You know, I, I'm like, I'll be like Paul Revere riding through the streets saying, you know, COVID is coming and please be careful, take precautions. It's not unmanly to wear a mask. It's not a political statement that you're making. It's something that shows courtesy to other people. And it's also something you do for yourself so you don't catch something from someone else. Now, you know, people said once you have it, maybe you're immune. I don't know if I am or I'm not because there's been conflicting stories and you might be immune for a few weeks, might be immune for six months, who knows? But from my standpoint, every time I go out and all I do is go out to go to the store, I don't, you know, or I take a walk around the block or walk the town, but uh, I have a very limited social life as do we all right now. I take all the precautions in the world and I'm always wearing a mask. I mean, we all look like bank robbers walking around town, you know, with our faces Tracy, covered. But, Tracy, but the fact of the matter is, this is what we have to do now. Yeah. Tracy, will you will you talk about the thoughts and the the considerations you made? Because Myriad Restaurant Group op- operates and this is considerable. How many how many outlets and restaurants do you operate? I'm going to guess you probably have several hundred employees whose livelihoods you're responsible for, both in terms of the economies of their lives and the health of their lives. Can you take us through some of the considerations you had to weigh with with your brother and your team in deciding what to do, literally? Well, I mean, it, look, it's gut wrenching. Look, I'm I'm out of work now. Also, I, there's not a bank of Myriad that you know has money that comes down and pays you. So. I'm like everyone else. Uh, you know, I've been working for many, many years, so maybe I have a little money in the bank. I'm not in one of these situations where, if, you know, two weeks out of work, and you know, you're 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 wondering how every bill is going to get paid. But our, our greatest consideration, obviously, we didn't make this decision in a haphazard way. We 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 looked at what was going on, and of course, a lot of the decisions were kind of made for us. But our biggest concern in terms of being able to come back. And when we do come back, it's safety. It's safety for our employees to make sure that they have a safe environment to work in and that they can get to work in a safe way. Because in New York City, most people travel from the outer boroughs. They have to get on the subway. The subway has been a Petri dish in New York for the virus. Now they're doing all kinds of cleaning measures to make it better. But nonetheless, you're in with other people. It's hard to maintain social distancing. So this is one of the things we're very concerned about, bringing people back before it's safe to do so. Then you're concerned for the guests. And does a guest want to come in the front door and have their temperature taken and then have to be wearing a mask in the room and then be escorted to the bathroom and all the other things that may be necessary? The rules are going to be uh, formulated as time goes by. And they may be different in New York City than they are in some other parts of the country. Our greatest concern from our standpoint is that we are about providing experience where all of the Bases of excellence are covered. We want people to have an exemplary experience. And we we are concerned that with all of these inhibitors that create a degree of anxiety, that we will not be able to deliver the experience the way we want to. So we may wait it out a little bit longer. I mean, obviously, if a vaccine is developed, that would be something that would be like, you know, nirvana from heaven coming down. That would be a wonderful thing because we'd all have tremendous uh anxiety taken off of our shoulders. But right. uh, it, it's, it's in New York, they're talking a lot about outdoor dining and how they're going to cut all the red tape and they're going to make spaces available for outdoor dining. And on the face of it, that's, you know, that's okay, except that 
we do have something called summer <laughs> and you have what and weather you know you, you have oppressive heat in las vegas and in arizona and we have heat and humidity in new york and thunderstorms and so on and so forth and so you know you're putting people outside you know they're out the elements what happens if the weather doesn't cooperate right. that's 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 one part the other thing is you're carrying the food from a from a kitchen which may not be close to where these tables are so you know Every time you're, you may be going up and down stairs, whatever. I mean, you know, and it's a field trip to get the food. So, and, and the other part of it is if you're paying 100% rent, but you're only serving to say 40 or 50% capacity, even if you add outdoor seating, how are you going to be profitable? Because at the end of the day, it's a dime on the dollar business if you're successful. In recent years, it's not been a dime on the dollar business. It's been much less than that uh, or a money losing proposition. And now suddenly you're you're facing all these other obstacles. So how do you uh, make it profitable? Because we love what we do, but we also have to at least break even in order to keep it going. We feel a tremendous responsibility. We look, we don't want to bring people into work and then have to shut it down again. You know? We want to be able to go for a period of time. Uh, you would have to shut it down if you just were losing your shirt, or if there's another wave uh, that comes at us again. And they're saying the fall might be a ripe time, not just for flu, but also for coronavirus. So, you know, we're not, we don't see the boogeyman around every bush, but you do have to pay attention because this is uncharted territory. But we have never had anything in our lifetimes like this. I mean, Jennifer, you and I have talked a lot after 9-11. You know, 9-11 was a devastating experience for the country. And for those of us whose restaurants were within, you know, half a mile from where it happened, you know, this was a traumatizing experience and it was something that was not easy to come back from. But eventually we did because you could kind of create a framework for recovery where there wasn't a pandemic. <laughs> it wasn't open-ended. There was at least, you know, once you figure it out, there wasn't going to necessarily be another attack and that eventually people would feel safe to come back to the area where it happened. Uh, you could begin to operate again. But this is different. Let's go back to that, because I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times. Um, after 9-11, and we should tell people that your restaurant group is located in lower Manhattan, literally mere blocks and steps from the site of 9-11. And one of the most moving interviews I've ever been a part of was immediately following this, where you came on and you were describing what it was like to have to have walked, and you realized that the dust that was on you was as was as uh, morbid as as it was, and it was chilling and powerful. But we do in this industry what we know to do, which is feed people. And it wasn't long after that that a restaurant opened up near Ground Zero that was open 24 hours a day. I mean, you all swung into action within days, uh, uh, clearing out your freezers and fridges and feeding and and cooking and doing. Uh, but there was a restaurant not too far from Ground Zero, and it began operating 24 hours a day. And and we came in from all over the country, and we did whatever we could. You know, I came in for a week, and I, I remember busing tables. But it was really more people needed to talk more than anything else. Yeah, they needed a little food, but they needed the connection that 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 place provided. And of course, in a pandemic, we don't have that. We don't have the ability to cook some food for you. And then sit down with you and comfort one another in that 
camaraderie of moment. Can you talk a little bit about how that came to be? What was the name of that restaurant that literally generously and graciously just turned itself over to the public good that week? I'm trying to remember the name of it because there were quite a few places that, uh, that, that did things. I know that, uh, you know, the Capsudos from Capsudo Frere made their place available. Yep. And, you know, we were, we were moving supplies through Tribeca Grill. I mean, I remember in the early days, we'd have a shopping bag with sandwiches. We'd walk down to the site and we would literally hand sandwiches to the people at the pile. This was almost like a, diner, break. a big diner that became like a bigger diner. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it'll come back to me. My, you know, most of my answers, I'm on, uh, I'm on time release jeopardy now, you know, the answers <laughs> come back in about 10 minutes, you know, I'll be back with the answers after these important commercial messages. You know, Darlene Dwyer will remember if she's watching. Yeah. Darlene. Yeah. Darlene. Darlene's out in LA now. So uh, she's out on your, your coast. Um, yeah. And you know, they have the, uh, the museum downtown now. And, and honestly, uh, I've, I've looked at some things viral there, but I've never actually, I did go to the reflecting pools. But I've never gone through the museum because I lived through it, you know, and, and I think at some point I'm going to do it. But I felt like it's just it's it's painful. You know, it's painful in many ways. Uh, you know, we feel a great deal of pride about how everybody performed during that time. And uh, we feel uh, that, you know, we we, we were not uh, laissez faire about it. We really got involved. And, and uh, so I felt a sense of satisfaction. And my brother, you know, did an exemplary job helping to mobilize a lot of the things that had to be done, get suppliers participating and, and so on. But, um, you know, it, it's, 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 it's something that's, uh, it's almost like, uh, it's what's 19 years ago. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's hard, hard to believe. believe it's really hard to believe it's that all that time has passed. And, yeah. um, and if somebody had said to me that there might be something in your future, that's actually even more challenging. I would have said, well, I, I hope not, but, you know, here we are. The one thing I could say is this, that, listen, whatever gets thrown our way, there is a certain amount of resilience that we try to have. And as long as there's people out there with character and who really care about each other and are not just trying to advance their own parochial interests, I think that we're going to we're gonna be okay. You know, obviously, there's a lot of polarization in this country right now. There's a lot of anger, and it's being expressed in many different ways. Um but, you know, it's like 1968 again, you know, 1968, I was 15 years old. I was just trying to formulate my ideas and my way of thinking and uh, the music and everything about it, the counterculture, everything about it was very exciting. But also to see Martin Luther King assassinated and Bobby Kennedy and the Vietnam War raging, you thought, how could it get any crazier than this? And here we and are. Yet, you know, we look at the country now and, you know, we're kind of on the edge of a depression, not quite there. But I think beyond a financial depression, I think there's a internal depression that, uh, you know, for all of us to keep our mental health together at a time when there's so much pressure on everybody, financial pressure and emotional pressure, cultural things. I mean, it's very, very, uh, very rugged. So in our small corner of the world where we serve food, you know, we just hope that we can get back to doing it because it's therapeutic in a way. There's a craft to it. There's a skill to putting a good meal together and uh, to creating an environment where people can come together and enjoy an exemplary experience that we can provide for them. And a lot of times through the years when I've walked around to our restaurants and I look in the door and look in the windows and I see that people are having a good time and that we had something to do with creating that, they could have gone anywhere to eat that night. There's a lot of choices and they chose us. That gives you a feeling of great satisfaction. 
And that's a sacred trust that we have. And we don't want to let people down. Tracy, is there one lesson as operators that comes from the 9-11 experience that you might share with operators today about getting through this crisis? Well, you know, there's no magic wand. I, I would say this, that you really have to love this business and you have to have a high threshold of pain. Uh, if if you have doubts about it, and if you're not quite sure you really want to do this, then I would say gracefully step away because there's a lot of risk involved. And there's no, but the future is not guaranteed to any of us right now. And uh, the chances to fail are significant. Uh, the template to run a restaurant now is going to have to go through some some changes. And I hope, you know, that we're not going to become dinosaurs at our end of things. But fine dining is going to be facing a lot of challenges. I would just say that, you know, if you love what you do and you're passionate about it, um, stick with it because this is your life's work and you have to find some unique selling proposition to what you do to attract people. But if you have a good business plan, you have to have a good business sense about things. And if you have a good product, then you have a chance to succeed. And if you can get the word out properly, you know, then you have a chance to succeed. If you're mediocre and the work that you do is not... Uh, you know, particularly uh, interesting, right. the chances are you're probably not going to do that well. Hey, Trace, but, but you know, you your brother Drew and Myriad Restaurant Group oh. have been honored multiple times by the James Beard Foundation. Your chefs in your different restaurants have been honored. But maybe one of the highest honors is is that restaurant of the restaurant tour of the year. Um, and And I wanted to, because you're so successful, and have been successful for a very long time, operating at the very highest levels in the restaurant business. I have to ask the question, what kinds of things are you thinking about in the reimagination of what this business will have to be on the other side of this? Have you even started having those conversations yet? Well, you know, there's the conversation you have about things that are gonna happen in the industry. I think we alluded to it when we chatted a few days ago that when I was a kid, there was something called the automat. And uh, it was run by Horn and Hardock. And you'd go in there and they'd have all these little cabinets and you'd put the money in, you open it up and you had a sandwich or a dessert or something. And as a kid, I thought that was fantastic. That was great. And I could see where something like that uh, could come back again at some point because you don't have to have somebody serving the table. And, you know, it. but it, it, it's that's not what we do. That's not that's not something that would interest us for us going forward. We want that connection with the guest. We don't want everything to be bloodless with devices and, you know, look at this screen and look at that screen. We like the interaction of a server with the guest and somebody to greet you when you walk in the door. We're old fashioned that way. You know, when we were kids, my brother and I used to go eat out at restaurants. Our dad did legal work for restaurants and we would, it was like theater. We loved the idea of sitting at a table and I always liked to have my back to the wall so I could see everything that was going on. And my brother was even more acute about that. And you saw the kind of people that were eating there, the interaction between the staff, uh, the, the, you know, when somebody, in those days when you had a birthday, they put a sparkler on the cake. You know, now it's a fire hazard, but in those days, you know, they'd have the sparkler. I used to go to a restaurant called Headquarters, which was owned by a guy who had been Eisenhower's chef during the war. Oh, and cool. I know the guy. I know the guy. Oh, I was, I was, it was guy Charlie Fodor and, and Johnny Schwartz. That was that was I a love lovely restaurant. Frank yep. McGee, yes, Charlie Fodor. What a, what a guy! They they would bring you a uh, a cake for your birthday, and it had the sparkler on it. And they said, 
if you get if you blow out the sparkler, you get to keep the restaurant. So I would try to blow it out, and I blow it out. And of course, being a schmucky kid, I didn't realize that the, the deck was the deck was stacked. Uh, so we had to open our own restaurants. You know, ultimately we couldn't blow but out the damn sparkler. It's mesmerizing, right? When you're a kid and you're enchanted, yeah. and it's like you meet these restaurant owners that you just sort of like, wow, those are your celebrities, right? Like I That's always right. say, the first who's the first celebrity I ever met? Ronald McDonald is the first celebrity I ever <laughs> met, right? And then you see these. And then you see these fantastic restaurant tours, and that's so. I my book comes out July first. I wrote a book. I'm embarrassed to show you, but I'm going to show you because obviously you're so. It's called Food and Beverage oh, Guide. That looks, that, that looks terrific. Wow. Well, you know, you know, when you have big connections, Wiley Publishing has published it. They're right. They're not too far from you. They're in Hoboken, and uh, yeah. but one of the things that we talk about is what you're what you're talking about now. Like I could have been. In that restaurant, right, with you guys. I remember going to the deli and like Chuck was the greatest dude, my dad's friend. And I was so excited that Chuck went to high school with my dad and had the coolest deli. And I was hanging out in the deli with Chuck and all the guys. And remember those days, right? Absolutely. And then uh, and then you see these other guys ignite and they want to be, they want to have restaurants, they want to do it. And you always you want that that joviality, right? I grew up in Washington, DC. So there were restaurants like Duke Zebert's and Paul Young's and all these guys, they were all famous. Like anybody who had a restaurant down, they were famous guys, right? Um, and it was super exciting. So it's like there's a spark inside of these guys that all want to be that, right? Is and Jennifer, I was talking about, we're always, we're always talking about, can, can you reignite that spark during a time like this? I know it's scary and I know things are, and we're talking about single operators, right? Single operators, maybe they live in small towns and they're closed and they're worried. And they, you know, I know guys that are not not reopening after forty years, right? We all know those guys. Yeah, yeah. I get it. They don't want to put their life savings, and they're they're seventy years old. They don't want to do it. They're done, you know. Um, but hopefully, a lot of these younger guys will reignite that spark. You know, they love like what you said. Maybe they got a great pizza. Maybe they've got a great pot, like spaghetti sauce bread. Whatever it is that 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 spark came from, that makes it. I'm gonna open a restaurant. Whatever made them. Want to do the dumbest thing in the world they could ever do, right? Is open a friggin' restaurant, right? Um, it's uh, the only thing that's that different. The, the thing that's scary now is that a lot of the people that opened restaurants back when we were kids, they were off the boat. They came from other countries. They came to America for opportunities. There was a lot of ethnic people from Italy and France, etc. And so labor costs were low, food costs were low, and real estate was not what it is today uh really you even know percentage even percentage wise it wasn't it wasn't well restaurants were the doorway to the u.s economy for new arrivals for generations yeah you had a chance to be successful because there was a balance to the costs now unfortunately every cost is high real estate isn't is insane labor costs are high you you're paying benefits now that were not part of the equation back in those days um and then, you know, and it's all justified. I mean, let's face it. I mean, but if you're in a place like New York City, uh, you know, it's 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 the cost of living is very high and it's high in a lot of parts of the country. So the the equation to be successful financially, it's becoming harder and harder that that window of opportunity. But that excitement that, you know, Michael, you were talking about that we all felt when we were kids, that place headquarters was mesmerizing to me. I mean, I remember Frank McGee. Uh, was a famous oh, yeah. NBC uh, personality. He'd do a show in the corner there. 
There was like a little lamp behind him. And I, I just thought, wow, that's Frank McGee. You know, it, it was incredible. There were pictures Wait, around. The and that's where Larry you know? King and, and Tracy, Larry King would do his show live from Duke Zebras, right? Yeah. And we're yeah. kids. And we're over there at Duke's downtown 18th Street in D.C. And we're like, oh, my yeah. God, Larry King. We're going to be. Yeah. Duke is this handsome old guy, all dapper and boop, 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 right? And then Mel Crouppen used to run his door. And then he opened his own place called Mel Crouppen's. And it was, a, it was so fun. They were like, wow. There were wow. amazing places for hangouts. You know, I mean, there were places for sports stars. I mean, there were there were there were it was it was it was quite exciting. And we used to eat at a lot of different places and they weren't all highfalutin places. But uh, there was one place called Shea Giselle. I'll never forget. Uh, my brother and I had been misbehaving at the table and uh, we we're kicking each other in the table. And our parents finally reprimanded us. And so we had our heads down on the table. We're moping. And in comes this older man with like a Beatles haircut. And he starts going like this. And it was Mo Howard of the Three Stooges. Oh, wow. You know? And I thought, Mo, it was Mo. You know, I mean, if, yeah. if, 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 if the president had walked in, we would have gone, oh, okay, that's nice. But Mo Howard, the Three Stooges, that was hot stuff. And oh, so like, he like, came oh, in with another yeah. person, and we, we, he was sitting at a corner table, and we went over several times, being schmucky kids that we were, and that's he was great. very gracious to us. And he gave us each a card. On one side, it said the Three Stooges. They were starring in a movie with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs or something. And he signed mm -hmm. an individual card to my brother, to Drew, and to, to me as, as well. Oh, my God. I, I carried that card in my wallet for about 25 years. And I was once working out at a, at a health club in New York, and somebody broke into my locker, and they stole my wallet. And I didn't care about the money in the wallet, but I did care about that autograph. But I'll tell you something, Tracy. That, so that story, like, we had that as kids, right? So one of my best friends was on Saturday Night Live, right? And he's a legend at Saturday Night Live. And all he wants to do is tell me the story. I can't remember the name. It was a Joe Namath owned part of the restaurant. And Paulie oh, Green Bachelor's was there. Three. What was it? Isn't it Bachelor's 3 and he owned it with Derek? Yeah. No? Uh, maybe. I'm not sure. But he was telling me he would go to the restaurant. And then Mike Tyson, he met Mike Tyson there. And they became friends. And Dana Carvey was, John Lovitz is my friend. So John would go and he met, the, yeah. you know, Dana and him would go afterward. And it was the, the names, Danny Aiella, like all the people that would be, that these guys were, we know them as big famous stars, you know, John and Dana, but back then they just started, right? Lauren just gave them the job, right? Yeah. So they would, they would go to this place and it was mesmerizing, mesmerizing to this day, how many years, 40 years later, John will sit down with you and tell you the story and tell you every single person that he met at this restaurant. And they would go, and they would go in the back room, and so and so. That Eddie Murphy would come when they got as they get right. And it is, it's the same stories we're telling about how we're well, like, woo, look at these guys. You know what it shows is that a restaurant could be a memory machine. You know that you bring people in, and every night it's a little different. You know, there's a cast of characters that come in to dine that are not identical each day. It's like snowflakes. You know. You may look at a crowded room and say, well, there's another crowded room, but each person comes in with their own story and their own background. They come from all parts of the world, all parts of the country. And it's a unique privilege to be able to provide ambiance for that and to serve those people. John Lovitz, you know, it's an interesting thing. Have an idea. If he ever opens in a restaurant, love it or leave it. You know, that could be a good name for him. He would love that. He you know? would love that. I'm going to connect it's you guys. Right? An edge to it. What do you think? Here's you know? the weirdest part, Tracy. So John calls me out of the blue and he's like, there's a new restaurant trend. This is a few years ago. I go, whatever, dude. 
He's like, I'm telling you, it's going to be huge. I'm like, what is it? He goes, pokey places. I go every day. I can't stop going to this pokey place on Sunset. And he, and then all of a sudden, you start like seeing them all pop up. You know, remember when, like, it was a few years ago, they all, right at this point, but all these little poke places were popping up. And I'm like, damn it, John, you have foresight, bro. You should be in this industry. It was amazing. But, it was, but well, the story so was coming up the, the glove. Are you thinking about a league of their own? Because John John Lovitz was in that, you know, wasn't yes, he? Was he was, like, he was a scout. We've got to wrap up because we're going to bring on some other guys to hang out with us because we're going to go out to the West Coast. We're going to San Francisco to the Elixir Bar where our good friend H. Joseph Ehrman is going to be with us in his new role uh, from uh, Fresh Victor. And uh, the founder of the company is going to be with us as well. But I wanted to – listen, I could spend all day hanging out with you. You're one of my all-time very favorite people. Uh, we want to talk about, but I'm going to say, I hope that there will be some season because not only did the restaurant that you and your, your family, uh, and your group operate at city field, uh, formerly known as the Acela grill get renamed this year to the Metropolitan grill. Yes. As, as a, as a tribute, this is my daily driver. As you know, I've got a, a little leaguer, a bona fide heading for a Williamsport little leaguer. And I play catch every day. And the glove that I play catch with is this. And I and I literally think of you every day that I play catch with, with my kid because the glove that I wear, that I have to wear because it's big enough to absorb as my kid gets stronger and throws harder. I don't know if you can see what it says in there, but it says Keith Hernandez. Oh, wow. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm still playing with my thoroughly broken in Rawlings RFM9 Keith Hernandez mitt that was the same mitt I wore when you came and Throughout the opening pitch at spring training in Tucson, Arizona, when we still had a cactus league. That was a lot of fun. That, that was, was great. Wow. Well, Listen, guys, the Field I of Dreams will be back. And uh, yes. all I can say is touch all the bases, you know. Touch thank all you, Tracy. I, I really want to thank Tracy because now we know that you're a hoarder. Yes, it's true. For that long. And there's Tracy, no, thank no you for doubt about that. You, my secret has been revealed. <laughs> yeah, no, Jennifer, thank you. Jennifer is a hoarder, and Tracy revealed his secret, right? All right, thank you, sir. We appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Guys, be well. All right, be well and Bye -bye. be safe. Take care. Thank Bye. you, too. Glad you're feeling better. All right. Wow. Have we got, have we, this is going to be wow. one of these shows where at the end of the show, you're going to go, wow. Because you don't no, I know. Said, well, he's a, I, want, I don't want to, I, like, I want to talk to him like 24 hours a day. Bring I want to move on. in with him. Bring him on. No, I, I want to move in with Tracy. I want to go and move in with Tracy in New, in New Jersey with that. Can I tell Does you? Does he cook? What? He's one of the all-time fantastic human beings. His wife is an amazing woman. They're the greatest couple that I've ever met. They're really a great couple. They have two fantastic. Well, he's also, you know, he's very, very humble because I don't think he's built a lot of famous chefs. I mean, Nobu on his on his back was built. Believe that. I know that. I know that. Did I tell you well, I know that? Your friend and mine, Carrie, and let's bring the guys on because I don't want them to wait back. What about Carrie Simon? Say his name. Say it, Carrie Simon. So your friend and mine, Carrie Simon, 
who yeah. was the Iron Rock and Roll Iron Chef, was also on Iron Chef with the bridge between the two Iron Chef shows, Morimoto. Right. Morimoto was on the original Iron Chef, and then he was on the U.S. Iron Chef, and he was one of the original cooks that came to work for Nobu at the original U.S. Nobu with Drew and Tracy at Myriad Restaurant Group, right? Oh, and then he goes on to have this enormous success on his own in the Morimoto Empire. Uh, but that's how the world happens in food. You work for a legend and then you work hard. And if you have the thing, you become a legend yourself. We have a legend on the show coming up next. Oh, I thought I was going to be your legend that you were going to be talking about. You're always my you legend. Ken? You mean Ken, the legend Ken or yeah. H. Joseph? I mean, H. Well, well, Joseph. Both. But I got to tell you, I have been watching and following H's career. We first met, and H is going to remember this because. When you go back 19 years now, 20 years to the first Tales of the Cocktail events, we were, as a cocktail community, like a hundred nerds in a room. That was TMI. 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 No, no, no. No, no, no. This is for real. We were like a hundred nerds in a room that loved the history and the culture. It wasn't about getting tight. It was about... The camaraderie and the history, it was about the legends going back to from Dale DeGroff all the way back to some of the legendary barmen uh, from the last part of the, the 19, 1900s and then into the early 1890s. We went back in time and we celebrated. And our goal, age wasn't it simple? We just wanted to go get a Negroni and not have to explain what goes into it. We yeah. wanted to have a Manhattan and not have to tell someone the ratios. We didn't want to have to describe every time we wanted an old fashioned what went into it, let alone imagine being able to get a proper stinger somewhere, let alone, oh my God, a gin fizz or, I'm sorry, a margarita. But thanks to you and the really dedicated, what I'm going to call you, hospitality professionals who work on the liquid side of our industry. From that day forward, the bar side took the Concord when it still existed to catch up to food. Food had been happening for an extra 20 years. They right. were way ahead of us. They didn't have any clue about what they'd left behind. But we helped them catch up. And I have to say what an honor it is to have you and Ken on the show today to thank you and properly give you some of the credit for making the cocktail culture that we have today. because. You've been one shake at a time, one sip at a time, educating and welcoming people into this world. So I just want to say thanks for being on with us today. And thank you for giving us the gift of this culture. Oh, man, thank you. And, I, you know, this is, uh, you know, it, it's like you were just talking about the passion, you know, and it's, uh, it's been a lifelong career endeavor and uh, it's been a fun ride. <laughs> Well, it looks like you were rode hard, H. What's going on over there? <laughs> well, it's been a while. I'm not, I mean, you're quite a cowboy. I, I once, once was, you know. Michael, I'm you know what's later. funny, though? Uh, the, the people, uh, people, uh, H and, and Ken and I, in the cocktail world, every Wait, you know Ken, too? Well, I, I, I would like a eulogy like that. That was an <laughs> intro. I thought it was a eulogy. I thought she was closing the show. I really, I was, I was about to listen to that. Yeah. So, 
in all seriousness, guys, you've got to consider that in the cocktail world, every few years, the next generation picks up and takes over. And so literally, it's only been 20 years chronologically. But in terms of generational transformation, H and I are like the great grandparents now in the cocktail culture. Yeah, I don't want to be rude, Jennifer, but he looks like it, and you look like the great grandchild. Ken, <laughs> Ken, how do you feel about that? Yeah, we, we owe them much. That's for sure. Uh, my granny glasses oh. back on, and there we go. Fun. Benjamin Franklin glasses. Come All on, see what you did. Days. I'm their drinking grandmother. So where are you guys? Are you guys in California? Where are you guys? Yeah, we're split. North, we're we're in Northern California, but we're not in the same. I'm up in. I'm actually up in Santa Rosa, um, in wine country, kind of. Um, and uh, and uh, Ken's down in. Uh, where are you right now, Ken? On the, I'm on the peninsula, so I'm just south south of San Francisco. Okay, guys, we've got lots to talk about because as we're going East Coast, West Coast. And the way the disease is impacting everything and now with the riots and everything, everybody's like, are you open? Are you not open? We've been going on the East Coast, West Coast saying, you know, clearly with, with Tracy and the Myriad Restaurant Group, New York City, not a lot is open still. Uh, some places are doing takeout. Can you give us a snapshot of what the COVID impact has been in San Francisco on the West Coast and where we are today with things? Because H is the... Um, the mixologist genius yep. behind one of the most influential cocktail bars in the world called Elixir. It's, it's, um, we just got a little piece of news, not an hour or two ago, the governor has said that they're going to allow, um, bars to open in California next week, oh, wow. but it's not, it's not going to happen in San Francisco because the mayor of San Francisco has said, we're not going to, they're not going to allow bars to open until mid August. Oh, wow. So, Things are definitely going slowly. I closed Elixir on March 15th um, and um, everything's shut down. I mean, it's, it's, it's been surreal, you know, um, hard to believe. Uh, it'll be, you know, if we go to mid-August, it'll be five months without being open. Um, and, um, for, you know, just that alone has been a big shift for me to be able to manage that and and it's you know it, it keep talking to other bar owners and friends that say you know, it's this is not what we got in the business to do and it's it, it's like all of the painful pain in the butt stuff you don't want to do is what we have to do all the time now there's none of the fun there's none of the love and um so that's that's been hard and then for our fresh victor business we we uh we made a big pivot as well because we were providing fresh cocktail mixers to large chain accounts and Disney Epcot Center and Vegas casinos. There they Vegas. Are. We were Look just at that. where we've been. We were just opening. Uh, we were just about to open with drinks on the menu at the pool at the Wynn and at the Cosmopolitan. And we've been in. Um, we've been in Mama Rabbit at the MGM, and we, we were growing Vegas, and all that just dried up overnight. I live in Vegas, H. Oh yeah, cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I see. To, it just I used came to be the man. I used it, to be the man in Vegas. <laughs> now you're you just know. a dad. No, I'm just another. I was always a dad. Now I'm a dad again. But that's exciting to get into those places. So they do they cancel the orders? What do they do to you? Because they're about to reopen. They're reopening. They're reopening. Yeah, but well, we're trying to get back in touch now to see what what's happening. Um, a lot of people have lost their jobs. 
Um, That's the problem, right? So the people that were your procurement guys and the guys that love the product are all gone now. Yeah. But I think when have they maintained their people, so you should be all right with that. Yeah, we just haven't haven't gotten back in touch yet, so we're waiting to see. But uh, so Marianne, can, Marianne left can, uh, left the Cosmopolitan. Really? Um, Marina, excuse me, Marina, and uh, so there's there's uh, there's changes happening. A lot of people have lost jobs. A lot of places have closed. I don't know about Vegas, but we we are starting to see some stuff uh, pick up in the southeast and Florida, and some things turn back on on that level, but. Our shift has been really to focus on on uh, consumer stuff, people drinking at home. So now we're giving, bringing fresh Victor into people's home bars. Hey guys, uh, can we uh, talk a little bit about um, the birth of Fresh Victor and how it took almost a decade for the cocktail industry to grow substantially enough that we had the the real awakening hit broadly enough that there really was a whole legitimate category of, of people who were who were aware enough, awake enough, and, and, and the connoisseurship had evolved and the education had evolved to where fresh really matters. Uh, H, I know you've been a, a fresh squeeze guy for as long as I've known you, but but not everybody was like that. And of course it was from the, the gospel of Dale DeGroff, the king of cocktails, and, and even Joe Baum in New York who was insistent that the legends of Harry Craddock and all those guys from another hundred years ago (laughs) were insistent on that kind of quality. Talk a little bit about Fresh Victor and what your guys' dream was and talk about the birth of the company because I think big things are ahead for you. I want to hear that from Ken. Ken, I want you to talk and I want you to tell us, since I saw you are the CEO, and I want to know what you did. What you did before, as the now that you're the founder of this, what are you in? The, were you in the produce business? Let's hear. Let's hear Ken's story, shall we, people? Ken's. I'm just the all-American, just the typical boy meets girl, follows her down to Guadalajara, stays, and gets vertically integrated into the you know premium tequila space back in the '90s. So H and I have known each other for. It's going on two decades now, which is hard to believe. But you know, um, when you meet someone like H, you know, you feel like he's doing everything right, and he's he's doing it the way it should be done. And being in the tequila business, um, it was an interesting partnership. All right, so you were in the tequila business first. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. You met a girl in Guadalajara. I met her up here. So to, to- Oh, to impress the girl, you went into the tequila business because that's. I don't happened. think he was so impressed. Yeah, that w- H. How do you feel, H? Just go along with it, buddy. I Follow wish. me with for Ken. I'm trying to get through Ken right now, right? I'm doing good. He's like, oh, I'm gonna own it. So, what was the tequila? Are we are we familiar with it? Do we know the brand? Yeah. So, uh, I was working with a company called La Cofradia mm-hmm. that had made things such as Casa Noble. Oh, okay, of course. And we had come out with a brand called Amate, A-M-A-T-E. Of course, of course. And we were importing it into California as well as uh, the Western states, the United States. Sure. And had done. Oh, my gosh. Look at this. <laughs> I think your wife's a little bit too young for you, Ken. This is awkward. I, I don't know what's happening in this show right now, but this is getting a little awkward. H, you warn me. <laughs> I'm on I'm on conference calls with Ken all week long, and our kids are always just oh, climbing our backs. I've got my three year old cl- ready to climb on me any minute. You're gonna love this. I want to hear. Go ahead, Ken. 
You want to hear about this because there's entrepreneurs listening. There are people that want to know how to be successful, right? Absolutely. And I tell them don't because I don't want the competition. But you may be able to share that information. Yeah, you know, um, th there's a lot of politics in the three-tier system. It's a long race. It's not a short sprint. Mm -hmm. And you learn a lot from failures. And we yeah. failed when we were young. You know, we, we, we found out pretty quickly that if you're going to be the new shiny object, that you have to figure out how to stick around for a long period of time. Yes. And, uh, through those lessons and building uh, tequila brands over the years and working with H, H has always added, you know, a, a real flair to the mixology, to the fresh cocktail scene, to everything else. What we had really discovered was the hole in the industry came from how people wanted to drink better and build their cocktails. So they were no longer asking, hey, what about that 100% agave tequila? There was a lot of those. We weren't short on those. It was how do you actually build the cocktail from the ground up without squeezing all these limes and taking an hour and not talking to your guests, et cetera. H had always done that at Elixir. I became really fascinated with how can we do that for both the industry so they can save time and effort as well as the home consumer. And the barriers to entry were prodigious. No. Well, you already what you already had some entry though. So you knew obviously distribution, right? But now that was a different type of distribution. So I'm assuming you're a member of WSWA and you went to all the conventions and you knew all the distributors and you and I probably met there a few times, I'm sure, because we're the, the media sponsor there. Um mm -hmm. but I do notice that it is hard the, the barrier of entries are difficult for obviously for, for spirits and wine, right? Yeah. Um, but for what you're doing, it's very different because you, your clients, the customers are almost the same people, the off-premise stores, right? But then you want to get, as, as H was saying earlier, you want to get to the on-premise stores, right? So right. It's, it's, we created something called the Proof Awards. Have you heard of, have you ever heard of the Proof Awards? Did you ever hear yeah. about our awards? So what we did was, I was getting all this information and everyone's winning awards for their spirits or their wines or their products like yours, which is great. And the bartenders were the ones, and, and. You know, maybe there's maybe there's guys that are claiming that there's experts in the taste of whatever, but you get an award, you don't have to do anything with it. So I said, hey, I'm doing it differently. I'm bringing in key buyers for big box brands, big distributors, all this stuff, and there, 40 people are going to sit there and taste your product, right? Right. So we did it last year. We sold just for the judges alone, bought over two million dollars of product from people. Wow. We're small, right? So we're so uh, Delta Airlines, Sky Clubs picked up five brands. Five brands. Yeah. So so what you're saying, it's true, this barrier of entry, and these people don't want to talk to you. Like I, you know, I even the guys that I know, so I say, Oh, I got this great brand, and they've got like two one of my buddies has like two hundred and something stores in Texas, right? Uh, all premise. You gotta try it, bro. You gotta try it. It's a celebrity involved. Oh my god, Michael. So go ahead. I I can't wait to hear. Tell me about how are you in off premise stores now for consumers as well? Yeah, you know, you brought it. That was really insightful about what you said and how people view things and how to actually get the platform. It's the really difficult thing was wanting to do it in this way and being fresh. You have to be cold chain. Yes. And distributors aren't set up for that. If it's Southern Wine Experience, Young's Market Company, RNDC, Glacier, you know, you name it, they want a shelf stable item. They can sit in a warehouse right. more or less for a year or two 
and feel good about their inventories. With this, we're not built for the storage system. We're built for the enjoyment of drinking fresh cocktails. Right, right. That's fair. And so we've got a two-month window to to really say, hey, we need to get it from production to shelf to people consuming it. And that's where the real issue. And this is the guy right here that you rely on for that? This I rely on this guy for a lot of different things, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer, am I picking on your friends too much? I want to finish the loop on this because then, so you got to go on this cold chain. But then the problem becomes you go into a universe where they're not fluent in mixology. They're not appreciative of the quality and the scope of possibility, the volume of business and the necessity for quality and irresistibility. You go into the the fresh side and they they, they don't think they're, they're not fluent in cocktail. Nor is the margin. It, it's that it's they want. like the day. Jen, the margin. They're going to look at this. You're taking Listen, the listen, but but the reality is you're taking a nighttime business into a daytime world, and they just don't know how to deal with it. And you and literally have you, to. I have taken many nighttime girls into daytime worlds, and it works sometimes. H, <laughs> I can't say it to Ken. He's got too many kids around right now, right? <laughs> and Jennifer, you're more of a daytime girl that I have taken into the nighttime world. My finest I, moments. I believe you. I yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, you're absolutely right. The, the When you look and you put this into perspective and really look at what we built, we built something that we have to convince the industry of. They don't believe it exists. Hey, if somebody could do this, they would have done it years ago. Right. It, it's not real. Well, from the cocktail side, Ken, they're like... And not a moment too soon. Thank God. This is like the miracle product. And you go to the other side of it where you actually have the distribution you're going to need to rely on for your business to become successful. And and it's like, what do I need that for? They don't even have an awareness that that is a need that exists in any part of the world because it doesn't exist in their primary industry focus. And so when you really consider the the, the success of what Fresh Victor is doing and having, it's because they've done the hardest piece, which is they've actually made a world that didn't know that it belonged in the cocktail world become part of the cocktail world. Right. You know, 10 years ago when I was I was out schlepping my square one organic spirits bag and, and uh, teaching bartenders literally how to squeeze limes and make simple syrup and, and how, to, how to make fresh, simple, fresh sours and, it was it was hard to get bartenders at that time to think about bartending as a as a career as a legitimate job and not as what I thought of it in my twenties. But you know, it was something you're doing while you're doing something else. Oh, I'm not really a bartender. I'm actually studying to do this, or I'm an actor. Or I'm a whatever. And look, and and at the time, you know, we were a handful of us were out there doing that, and. The speed at which it caught on is crazy. The reason the reason we have this cocktail culture today is because of a, a ten year like explosion, right? I think H. I think it's because of one man. I think one man changed the entire. His name is Tony. Abogano. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. I think. And if you ask Tony, he'll tell you it was him. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, Tony will. Tony will tell you it's Dale. 
Yeah, no, Tony's the best. Tony will tell you it's Dale. Dale will tell Dale will tell you it's Joe Bomb. <laughs> and they it was they were my mentors. You know, they were I was sitting in their classes and saying, This is how I teach. And I remember I remember sitting in the pool at the Mona Leon with, with Tony in probably like 2007 at Tales of the Cocktail and and talking to him about how to present and how to how to get people excited about simple concepts and and how to do that stuff. And the same with Dale. And you know that and we went out and did it. And now what we have is we put it in a bottle. And so now we've got these simple things. Our, our products are are just fresh cold pressed juice, organic cane sugar, organic agave nectar, and fresh produce for flavoring. So it's a fresh cucumber puree or um prickly pear puree that's going into, into these products. And that's it. There's no preservatives. There's nothing. It's flash pasteurized. It's really rather simple, but it's still hard to get people to understand. Like, well, what do you, you just put, yeah, you know, just two, you know, equal, either equal parts or, or two to one, three ounces of our stuff, an ounce and a half of tequila, and boom, you got a margarita, you got a whatever. So, so Michael, the other thing I, I want to mention is here in Tucson, um, I'm the I'm the co-founder of the World Margarita Championships, and it was an event that grew directly out of Tales of the Cocktail, the early days of Tales. And we brought in some of our favorite people, including Tony and Dale, for those early years of the World Margarita Championships. And I kid you not, people showed up to participate and compete in that event that were still using mixers. And when I say mixers, it's not the Fresh Victor mixers we're talking about today. It's those old, like Mr. T or some other version of a. I thought it was called Miss, Mr. T was somebody else. That was, you mean Mrs. T? Mr. Yeah. T was. It was like Mrs. Else. T, though. It was a, it was a commercially uh, produced one. But what's so important about that is what the food people realized on their side of the equation was something that was being missed because the first impression to make a flavor first impression when people came into your restaurant and bar was often experienced as the philosophy of flavor that you expressed at your bar. And once chefs and operators and restaurateurs began to realize that the first impression they would get to make with any new guest came through the hands and the genius of H and his brothers and sisters around the country. Let me take that to another level, Jennifer. The respect that it deserved, because that was where, because of the Mobile Five Diamond Standard, because of the Michelin Star Standard, you had to have a bar. But most chefs didn't consider that that was where they got to first express their statement of their flavor philosophy, as well as their operating and hospitality philosophy. And I think that that was one of the pivotal moments where things changed in our business when they really began to then use stupid names like bar chef, but it really began to at least integrate the front of the house, back of the house, culinary side with the liquid side. Well, I also think that Tony and Bobby Gleason and those guys who were at the Bellagio, right? When they were doing all that age, yep. right? You know those guys. Oh, yeah. They actually brought racer. Right. I mean, you know, Bobby G, I mean, they're legends, right? And and I was there when they were doing this, right? So I was at the Bellagio with them and I watched them. They watched them work with guys like Carrie Simon who worked for Jean-Georges and you know, Picasso restaurants. And people would eat at these fine dining restaurants and they would go over and they would have the, they would, 
I would go up to the bar and hang out with Tony because I mean that's I live here, right? So that's what I did. Food and food these, guys, and like, these, guys, these guys here, Ken and H, they lived it. And when the right. tequilas that are now part of this boom in agave spirits is happening, because we've got the Southwest Agave Spirits Conference that we have to get you here for. We need both of you to come to the next one because God that's willing, right. happen this year. Talk a little bit about how you experienced that transformative moment when cocktails went from being the afterthought to the first act of the main show. Well, I think when the, um, once we had the bartenders hooked, you know, once you had bartenders believing what we were telling them and getting them to understand the, 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 the passion and the, the stories behind the spirits, the, the people who make the spirits, the way that they, that, um, that they evolved over time. A lot of the spirits company getting bartenders on trips and getting them to the distilleries. I'm, I've traveled all over the world. I've been very fortunate to be flown all over the place to study spirits. And that was to me the, the thing that made people realize where cocktails, we kind of got over that uh, puritanical um, right. Right. kind of wall that, that kept people from, from accepting spirits and cocktails because it was so, I don't know, we're even seeing it now in this whole COVID thing, like, you know, bars in California are not allowed to sell cocktails because until recently, we were not allowed to sell cocktails unless we had food, if we didn't have a kitchen. I, I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, you know, we're, 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 there's still those remnants. And, and my hope through all of this change is that the alcohol laws across America are going to finally be pushed to modernizing to 20th, 21st century realities that we're not, we're still living with these laws from the end of prohibition that are ridiculous. And it's going to, it's killing all these businesses and it's, it's killing distilleries, it's killing bars and restaurants. And I, ho I hope that that's going to change, but that going back to your question, you know, the, that I, I feel like it was about 2009 or so when it really was kind of like the tipping point. And, um, and then, you know, like in my neighborhood where the elixir is, if you wanted to get a cocktail back then, you could, you would come, you could either come a good cocktail, you'd come to elixir or, um, range or that was kind of it. <laughs> it's like two bars in the mission. Or or you'd go really old school and end up at some place like the Buena Vista where they had basically one cocktail, which was the Irish coffee, and, and you'd get that there. Or maybe you'd go to the top of the mark. Maybe, maybe. Tommy's, go to Tommy's for a margarita. I mean, there were good, there were good bars outside of the mission. But now but what happened was we had all these restaurants and nobody – Nobody had cocktail programs. So then all of a sudden, the, that's like he was saying that the, the, the restaurants started adopting good cocktails. And when the yeah, restaurants started putting in good bars. Yeah, you're breaking up a little bit. But I just want to jump in and say nobody was saying they were going to French Laundry for the cocktails. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's funny because the, the, the restaurateurs, forever everybody knew that it, it, it's the bar where you make your money. It's It's the bar where your margin is. But they still wouldn't put the effort into the bar. And then suddenly there was that tipping point about 2009, 2010, where the restaurants just started putting in good bar programs. And, and I think that's when it really kind of took off. Yeah. Hey, guys, um, one of the things I find really fascinating about Fresh Victor, your line of mixers that are fresh squeezed, refrigerated, and exquisite. 
is that if you were to take that same single jug, I want you to imagine the literally dozens and dozens of iterations that you can make with each, just mixing with each of the tequilas in a category, with each of the gins in a category. You literally are enabling everybody to have limitless, truly limitless combinations. How much fun have you had, H and Ken, pairing and trying out, auditioning, if you will, Fresh Victor's mixes with with literally any brand you'd find on any shelf, at any bar, anywhere. Has that been extraordinary? And what are some of the surprises that you've come upon as really irresistible combinations of mixer and spirit? I I think that you, Jennifer, you just hit on one of the most important points of all, you know, the, the whole reason we did this. For, for H&I, it's, it's number one quality. What you were just describing, how that movement actually occurred and how long it took. So writing that, but then also pairing that with versatility. And no one that I know of, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I absolutely could be, really had that facet of versatility. They were pairing it to one specific alcohol. This is a Bloody Mary mix. This is a margarita mix. If you don't like tequila, you're not buying that mixer that day. And so what we wanted to do and what we thought from the very beginning was if you have absolute fresh ingredients and you're able to pair this with anything, whether it's vodka, rum, gin, tequila, whiskey, wine, champagne for mimosas, beer for water, sparkling apple cider, total mixed, uh, you know, mocktails, not ABV all the way up the chain. Yeah. You're on to something. Now, now suddenly it doesn't matter what's in that shopping cart. It doesn't matter if it's a bottle of vodka, a bottle of whiskey, a bottle of rum. You've got something to pair it with. There's definitely pairings that I find, you know, that work particularly well. Like, you know, whiskey and cucumber doesn't really always work. But so the cucumber works really well with white spirits and and lighter things. And, you know, but the uh, all of the stuff that has more of a dominant, um, some some lemon works really well, like the three citrus and mint or lemon sour. The pet, the and some are just completely universal with everything, like the cactus pear and pomegranate. You can put anything in that and it's delicious. And and let's just tell people who maybe aren't as um, versed and experienced what's the difference between using a fresh mixer like Fresh Victor and something like a syrup? like a Giffard or a Monin, uh, you know, some of those deliver flavor, you know, orange syrup, or even some of the more sophisticated bitters hint at some of that. Why is this different enough that it's really distinguishing itself as a, as an essential product in the bartender's arsenal? Because it's, because of the sour balance, there's, you know, there, there's, it's a, it's, they're essentially all sour mixes, right? They're all different flavors. They've got their sweet and sour balance. They're all formulated to be perfectly balanced. They're mixers. They're not, they're not straight juices, although they are completely drinkable straight. Um, so when you shake them with ice and you're getting, you're going to get your chill and your dilution or you, or whatever else you're adding to it, you, you're, it's going to mix out a little bit that way. So there's thing they are also fairly simple yeah. flavor combinations they're they're pretty much other than the lemon sour and the mexican lime and agave which are you know our lemon and lime sour the rest are, are two flavors 
And so you, you have plenty of room that gives you a really good base to create a cocktail or spin a cocktail. And then you also have room to add flavors from a bitters or a liqueur or, or something else. So it gives you a lot of versatility, but saves you a lot of steps. And then also for the, for the trade, you know, there's all kinds of cost efficiencies and, and work efficiencies that come with it. But also now in this COVID era, you're also getting it completely, a completely safe product with low touch points. Nobody's, nobody's juicing all those limes in your hand with their hands and you're not paying for that labor. Maybe you can't even get that labor to come back to work because they want they don't want to get off of unemployment. So you get a really quick, easy, safe product that can go out and, and to go cocktails, to go cocktail programs. And then we also have it in 16 ounce bottles now. So you can. And, and it's almost in, in H and Ken, it's almost impossible for us to explain to people out there what it's like. And we've all three done this, I know. Because uh, backstage with the caps, which are the apprentices at Tales of the Cocktail or as part of the World Margarita Championship, we've been part of those long shifts of preparation, squeezing limes. And the thing about limes is that they're the star of your lineup as far as I'm concerned, because two things have to happen. One, limes have to be squeezed within a certain amount of time or else they start to oxidize in their flavor. You can't squeeze them the day before. They've got to have a relative close, fresh squeeze to the moment when you're going to be making your drinks. And you've cracked the code of that. So I think that's one of the first most essential things to say. But you also, like me, we've been backstage squeezing thousands of limes. It's not easy. We, we really wanted to take, you know, the, the, the hard work out of this for people. That, that was one of the main components was consistency. You know, letting people know that you don't have to worry about these raw commodity ingredients that can fluctuate in both price as well as quality. We have this down, and if you do it the right way and you just mix it, you know, two to one, you're going to come out with a beautiful cocktail each and every time. Yeah. And, you know, get them beyond these neon mixes that, you know, we've been used to from the 80s and 90s. We really wanted this to evolve into something we could all be really, really proud of. Well, and the other thing I want to say is when it comes to agave spirits, we now have mezcals and bacanoras and sotols. And so there's like literally dozens and dozens of spirits to marry just with that one starting block product of what can basically be described as the greatest margarita fresh mix you can find. Uh, talk a little bit about how this is going to be the, I think, the doorway to a brand new category of sipping. You mean the entrance or the doorway? Bienvenidos. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I think there's a, a world of discovery yet to happen that's possible because you guys have done what you've done. Instead of going out and buying a jug of orange juice and some limes or lime juice and dumping it all together, everything's there for you. I yeah, think people are going to want to try this on their own. I think it looks still, like this is a delicious treat. There's still a, a very big audience of people that don't understand, how, don't know how to make a simple sour. I I taught a cocktail, an online cocktail class last night for a bunch of my college alumni friends. And I, we we started with a cucumber Collins. We just did a square one cucumber vodka, lemon juice, and agave nectar. And 
they were blown away. And I started talking about what a, what a basic sour is and how it's a, a building block to layer flavors and textures and all these things on it. And, and everybody, I'm getting texts today from my friends that are like, holy cow, this is great. I didn't know I could do it. And it was that easy. Just the fact that these, that there are still so many people like that, and then they can find a product like this in their supermarket eventually as, as we roll out there. I'm fine. It's going to take the it's going to take the challenge of just learning how to do it off the table, and and essentially you know, everybody's kind of you know I including me pretty lazy. I'd rather just open something really good and pour it and get to the drinking. A lot of the time when I'm home, you know that's what I want. Yeah. So that's we that's can tell. We, we, yeah, we, well, we can tell. Michael, what you we don't see know. That is, in you, in your Michael, eyes. Michael, what you don't know is that H is actually world famous for his margarita and. Before we go, as we head off into the weekend, H, I'm wondering if you could give us a one, two, three about how to make a great elixir margarita. Well, you know, it's it it is all about fresh and and great tequila. You know, start with great great tequila. You, you can't you know cut corners on that. And there's still plenty of people, even though tequila is booming. There's still plenty of people that don't really. Right understand tequila and, and get, get something with a really good, solid, fresh agave aroma and flavor. Um, preferably for me, a Blanco. Um, I, I like Repos too, but I don't really like Añejos in, in, in my margarita. I don't like too much vanilla, caramel and all that. And I like that bright, crisp, citrusy aspect. Um, I do- Everybody grab a pencil. We got to grab a pencil margarita recipe from the king of margaritas himself, H. Well, you know, I got, I got to say, I, I, I learned from Julio Mermejo, you know, so oh, yeah. yeah. And, and the, 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 the Tommy's formula is what we make uh, at, at Elixir with the, you know, we do about um, three quarter ounce agave, nectar ounce of lime juice and two ounces of tequila and shake the hell out of it and enjoy. Um, Have you guys seen this? Classics with the Cointreau in it yeah. as well. What's that? Are you familiar with this? My buddy lives in San Francisco and he is in the band Third Eye Blind and his name is Stephen Jenkins. I can't read what it says. Summer it says Good? Summer Gods. Summer, Summer Gods. I've never seen is it. Is that not working? I but he's right there by you guys. He's right there in San Francisco. So I would love to connect you. Sure. You yeah, we love are it. You familiar with, are you familiar with Third Eye Blind? Yeah, yeah. And familiar do you with that. Do it? Should I hum a few? Hum yeah. A few? <laughs> do, 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 Hey, guys. Well, I'm going to connect you, H. Okay, great. Yeah, that'd be fabulous. I want, before we say goodbye, I want to get your crystal ball out. Wh where do you think we go next? Where is, uh, where is our industry going to go next? Where's our sipping going to go next? Um, what are you all seeing, hearing? anticipating what kind of sipping summer is this going to be a huge one I, th I think everybody with shelter in place drinking anywhere you look has been up quite yeah. substantially so what we're trying to do is teach people to drink at home better with higher quality exactly what you all have described over the course of this show um yeah and as food service comes back, as we see the restaurants start to come back, it will be a brave new world. It's going to be a slow turn to get back to where we were. And um, I don't think I don't think it's going to be much of a summer. I think it's that's we're going to really start to see that come back in September or something. But the yeah. home drinking will continue. 
And uh, it's we've we've been busting our butts to get our we have a direct to consumer on our website now, so you can go to shop.freshvictor.com and get it delivered to a certain number of states. And within about a month, we'll have seven products up there deliverable all over the country. And I have to say, I am going to be waiting for when your paleta business opens up and Fresh Victor pops. Yeah, uh, become available everywhere because we, the we've actually had customers them. ask us to make them for them. We're like, we don't make the pop. <laughs> you can get the popsicle molds and make them. We're not going to get in the popsicle business just yet. <laughs> we'll wait till we well, get national on this. And I'm telling you, that's what we all need. We need your excellent quality juices in those blends that are virtual cocktails unto themselves. I mean, that's what you've done. It's not a cocktail mix. It's an, it's a cocktail. You can just choose to add spirits or not. As far as I'm yep. concerned, you've done the hardest thing there is to do in a category that everyone thought was fully mature. You have really revolutionized your category. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Do you have a fresh Victor house toast that you share with your guests, guys? Not really. <laughs> now we better figure one out pretty quick. Well, if if I volunteer my services for wordsmithing that with you, will you make me some popsicles? Absolutely. Can I do it? Can I do it first? Can <laughs> okay. I do it first? Kid? Okay. Grab your lemons, squeeze them into the jug. <laughs> Popsicle. <laughs> Oi. Guys, have a great weekend. I can't thank you enough for being with us. Continue to be safe and well. Continue to be inspired. And Michael, when we started this week and this show today, mm -hmm. we talked about how do we spark that kind of passion that it took to get started in the first place. If these guys didn't spark and ignite that excitement in operators and entrepreneurs, I don't know who can. These can guys I just say one happy. more thing? Can I say one thing? I know you don't like me to talk. This is the first show in an hour and 25 minutes that you did not use this word. And I'm actually shocked. Okay, this is the word that Jennifer abuses. She's a, she's a word abuser. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. And, uh, yeah, she didn't use the word. So go ahead, Jen. Say no, it. So okay. We, uh, now, I haven't seen AG. We haven't been in the same room in a couple of years, but I'm going to tell you that one of the things that she, that he and I share is is this is this brotherhood, sisterhood of of really prizing creating that environment of conviviality for our friends and our guests. And it's who we are and it's what we do. And these guys are I feel I finally feel this conviviality. I don't know if it's H. He reminds me of like the hot mythology guy. I don't know what's going on. No, I'm just kidding. I don't have the uh, there, we go. there we go. <laughs> oh, you know Dave? That's hysterical, right? Yeah. Um, no, we love you guys. We love him. We love everybody. This is a fun show. Um, I'm going to have to go to San Francisco, I guess. I'm going to have to have dinner at Hubert's place. Is he has a place still up there? And until everything opens up. And, uh, yeah, for sure. Please do. We'll go up. Hey guys, we'll see you soon. Thanks for coming and being with us today. Pleasure to Thanks, guys. Yes, thank you. It's great. You. Really appreciate it. Thank you, thank Good you. Good to see you, man. Good guys, huh? You were right. I thought they looked like bum, bums, bums. You're <laughs> telling me they're good. I looked at the picture in the back because I could see what's going on backstage. And I'm like, wait, I think one of the farmers from the last show was Let on. Me tell you, every, every single show, 
every single show we do, you either say, wow, or guys, like literally, I, I feel like I have to convince you. And then at the end, you're like, oh my God, you were right. You do, you have to convince me because I'm, I'm a naysayer, I'm a naysayer, you know what I mean? Tracy was unbelievable, I want him on every day. Right? Uh oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, we got another viewer. Wait, wait a minute, there she is. Hey. <laughs> Look at this. Look at this. Look at that face. Where are those teeth? It's my turn. Oh, oh my look God. at that cutie. Look at that cutie pie. Oh. All right, we're back. You're out, H. That's all. That was your cameo. We just had to do a cameo. No, no, no. I gotta what? I gotta ask a question. What, what no, you don't. Know, we're done. What grade are you in? Who cares? We're done with Gracie. Oh, no, she's beautiful. I want to know. Oh, you'll call him later and ask him. Does everybody need to know that? No, no, no. So this is a perfect time for you to say. Go home, hug your kids, and please count your blessings. Have a safe weekend, and we'll see you next week. Because we have an extraordinary lineup of all-star all-stars. The kinds of people that the all-stars will tune in to watch because you won't believe how many big name superstars are coming on with us next week. Big name superstars. Big, big, big. Oh.